This episode is brought to you by Think Water Broom. Think Water are your local water experts for irrigation projects big and small. Their fully stocked retail store sells the latest irrigation products, including fittings, pipe, filtration and solar supplies. Covering the Kimberley and Pilbara regions of Western Australia, their knowledgeable and passionate team are experts in the design and implementation of the most water-efficient irrigation and water management programs across all sectors. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good and are so comfortable, there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. John Kirby started catching wild bulls in the East Kimberley in 1969, and by the time he stopped in 1983, he had caught approximately 10,000. However, when he caught his first bull, John had never worked with cattle before, as in, ever. This is the story of a young lad from the city who headed north seeking opportunity and adventure. And boy, did he find it. I had a fairly conventional upbringing in Melbourne, a working class family. Um, sold spare parts for my first job at 18 um, for cars. Uh, got a bit tired of that, so... Uh, Moved into uh, selling new cars as I got a few years older in the early 20s and uh, wasn't making enough money as the bottom line. <laughs> and uh, well, actually, I went from spare parts to a, from a, a storeman's job to work for Norma Tullow, where I was the only bloke amongst 20 odd women, which was quite uh, awkward because I'd never been in a work environment like that before. Uh, Norma was quite successful, but from there, once again, I wasn't making enough money to follow the lifestyle I aspired to. So I uh, got hit on the broad idea of, I was still connected to the car industry, always interested, or which persevered through my life. But I went to sell cars on the theory that the more cars I could sell, the more money I could make and I could get rich that way. <laughs> but, um, so I moved back to Preston Motors, worked there for a couple of years and uh, didn't like it much, couldn't tell enough lies. Uh, never been a feature of my life. So I uh, up stakes, to cut a long story short, I went on a holiday to Surface Paradise had a hell of a time there over a week with a couple of mates, went back to Melbourne and said, that's it, I'm pulling out of Melbourne. So uh, I did that, and one of the mates that went up with me on that holiday, we we, uh, we pulled out together, went up to Surface Paradise, uh, spent a year working in uh, Queensland on a railway construction project. There were there were three murders uh, while we were in that camp, and not in that camp, but in that on that strict section of line from uh, Gladstone inland to uh, wherever that coal, coal mine was. I haven't even forgotten the name of that, but it was quite exciting. It was quite a different show from wearing a tie and shirt and a suit and polished shoes every day to getting around a pair of shorts and a navy singlet and driving a pick and a shovel and a, or, a, or a crane or a tractor or whatever came up. 
uh, teamed up with a different mate. The, the, the initial mate went back to Melbourne. I uh, teamed up with Andy Miller, uh, the late Andy Miller, good, was a very good mate. We drove up to Darwin. We stayed at, uh, in the wet, the 66, 67 uh, wet in Darwin, and then we moved on down to here looking for work. Um, a place called Port Hedland was just getting underway as a, as a port at the time and uh, it hardly existed. And um, he'd worked, Andy had worked previously in Kununurra as a surveyor's assistant. He was a pretty smart lad, came from a very good family. And he um, he said, let's drop into Kununurra on the way through. As soon as the wet finished in Kununurra, we could draw it down. So away we were There was no bitumen whatsoever. It was just all dirt track. Oh, except for uh, except for Darwin to Catherine, but the rest was all dirt track. Down to about Geraldton somewhere, I think, in those days. That was quite a step. So... Uh, we uh, we got to him to Kununurra, he said, well, drop me into here. He said, I worked here as an assistant today and have a look at the place. Well, that, that, that's the understatement of the year. We'll stop here and have a look at the place. I'm still here now, 54 years later. But I think it works out to 50. Anyway, 1967, early 67, just after the wet. And uh, cut a long story short, we um, Andy uh, got married, moved on to manage one of his uh, father's properties, Tabessa, which I believe at the time was the far furthest north uh, that sheep had been bred or run in West Australia. Did you say Debessa? Debessa, D-E-B-E-S-A. Yeah, like down near Derby. That's it, at the Derby Wow. And the former manager's son is still a local here, as a matter of fact, a respected local. And and I stayed a little while. I also got married in there and went along trucking for a while. Uh, driving a truck for main roads initially and then uh, bought my own truck and that that involved um, driving for East Kimberley Transport who transported stuff out to outward stations and well, that got me hooked. I love that, you know, way out bush. Different to your own boss in charge of the truck. We're only talking of seven, eight tonners or semi-trailers. Semi-trailers were particularly intriguing. I just got my licence on them and uh, got to know the bush a bit and that was it. I eventually get, got my own truck and then... Uh, Life has several life-happening things uh, happened and uh, eventually uh, I'd wanted to do something else. Well, I had one seven-tonne truck, an old British-built one, a great old longer but thing that lasts forever, probably still going now somewhere. But it, uh, I had a young bloke driving that, but I, I'd heard about this bull catching from Andy uh, years ago, this bull catching business, which had seemingly originated in the Territory from a couple of uh, people who had seen the movie Hatari. And uh, in particular, there was a very successful young man, uh, or he turned out to be very successful uh, in the steel fabrication business in Darwin, and he'd seen it. He and a few adventurous mates, they'd be called backpackers today, tried to have a go at using Hatari techniques of roping buffalo off um, the front cage of a, a Land Rover. God, they've got more courage than I'd ever have, I'll tell you, trying that sort of thing, huh? But they did that, and that I understand to be the beginnings of what later be called, got to be called bull catching, I think. Uh, there might, there might be others who'd argue with me at any rate. What they can't argue is that I labelled it bull catching. I'm quite proud of that, that I've added a word that is now commonly used in the Australian language. Really? So that was, you coined that? Yeah, I absolutely did. Oh, that's I'll tell you how, um, we, it's all, this fits together neatly here. At the time that I took it up here, just out of the blue, I couldn't couldn't even ride a horse and still can't. As a matter of fact, don't want to either. I have a saying of horses that they that they're um, that they bite at one end, they kick at the other. They're damn uncomfortable in the middle, and they're very expensive to keep. <laughs> That's horses for me. Every little girl's got to have one though. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, Andy and I uh, 
got together and said, look, this bull catching looks all right. We, no, it wasn't called that at the time. It didn't have a name, bull running or this or that. And um, we, we cast around a bit and uh, we, we hired an old Land Rover and visited a few stations and uh, and didn't didn't do any good there. But I thought about it. Then I got the, that truck I mentioned earlier, the old Leyland, and I got a young bloke driving it. I'll have a go at this myself. Still, still didn't know the first thing about cattle, not the first single blind thing. So I uh, bought a new, uh, took my courage in my hands and bought a, uh, a short wheelbase Land Cruiser because they, they were being used a bit. Mainly the favourite vehicle was a long wheelbase, which is an awkward old-fashioned thing that just don't uh, they, they don't lend themselves to high-speed moving, which was my want. You know, I'd always been interested in you know, car racing and high-speed driving or, or excitement or something, I suppose. I don't know. I never particularly looked at that aspect of why I did it. <laughs> so anyway, I uh, met one of the great old characters this area, um, Les, um, out at the, he was the manager of uh, Ivanhoe at the time, and he was a big, rough old bloke, top man. You know, there was no part of the Kimberley that he didn't know. And I, it was only as I spoke to him, uh, I talked with him, that I realised just how much he knew. But he didn't have much to say, you know. But occasionally we'd run up against each other and, and mm, mm, <laughs> to say he was terse would be to put it mildly. <laughs> it wouldn't be very gracious of me to have. This past time that, he, that, he, that I thought a good night for him, I think someone might have called him the Kimberley Hogs, was, <coughs> was hello and <coughs> was a conversation. But, but Les Brown was one of the gentlemen of the and one of the smartest men I've ever met. And uh, we had a, a conversation one day with both of us leaning on a post opposite each other. This is when I was trying to get work for ball catching and start off by myself. And uh, Les uh, just stared me out and I'd finish. And his technique, I noted very quickly, was... Um, was that he, he, he'd draw you out by not saying anything. So I said, I'll play him at his own game. So I stood there and I'd said my bit, and that's it. I said, I want to do ball catching. I said, we haven't proven ourselves, but we want to have a go. There's plenty of balls around within striking distance of town as a starting point. Yeah. <clears throat> so I just <laughs> and we just stood there, and the sun slowly setting, and the rest of I wasn't going to break the silence, not for love of money. <laughs> so eventually Les turned on his head and he said, all right, he said, but I think you're effing mad. And stopped off back to the end of the house. So that was my start in ball catching. And thank goodness Les did that for me because uh, I still remember the first ball I caught. It was only about 2K out of 3K out of 10. That, that stage scrambles used to wander through the houses in town and even even th- through the golf course anywhere you like. I don't think the golf course existed. I'm not sure. But at any rate, uh, away I went and uh, caught a few. Mm. So you just said that the road pretty much from Catherine down to Geraldton was a dirt road back then, so yeah. fairly undeveloped compared to the Kimberley today. What else was different in the Kimberley back then? Like what was the landscape like, the amount of uh, development? It all would have been quite – That's a big topic, yeah. a wealth of discussion there that you wouldn't have time for. The, uh, the, 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 the An interesting point you raised there was the, something of the condition of the country that has deteriorated shockingly. Uh, for a brief period there, we uh, Pauline and I – were um, in, uh, we went from ball catching to trucking, and trucking became our major income. And we were up, I was up and down that highway at Halls Creek quite often and all over the place, really. Eventually, we got our own road train and some others. But um, the uh, for a long period of time, that's when the kids were growing up, I suppose, and we first moved out here. Um, the the land you get an imprint of the land, of knowledge of it. You know, when you live bush, as I've done, I probably qualify as a bushman of a type. But uh, when you live on that, you can you can see it or sense it or feel it or know it or something. But when we when the kids were being read up over, say, even a twenty year period between here and Halls Creek, that went from shrubby and grassy and uh, bigger trees, I suppose. I'm, as I say, that's why I say you've got to have an instinct for it more than anything else. 
Um, it just changes. You drive down there now and all you can see is fire, burnt country, dying, dying, dying. Back to bare rock and sand. It's uh, the country. Yeah. What, what was the other part of that? The, the country has deteriorated shockingly due to fire mainly. Yeah, I was just wondering like what, what the landscape – I mean, there would have been – I still cattle stations back then, but I guess we didn't have the infra- as much infrastructure with water points and fences. Oh, and it all would yeah. have been yeah, fencing, uh, uncontrolled. Yeah. So what? what yeah, back was then, it? it was wide open land. As I said, cattle, wild cattle, feral cattle used to just wander through the town. The population was only two and a half thousand in Canada at the time. I think something like that, two thousand, whatever. And yeah, but fencing—the the greatest enemy to uh, a, a wild and free life here—would have been barbed wire. You know, uh, I can remember road train loads of fencing material coming up. The advent of the helicopter. And, uh, yeah, the whole face of um, the Carlton today, Carlton Hill Station, would be a classic example, I suppose. It's it's being chopped up and divided up, and I, I don't frankly know who exactly owns what there. You know, it's part Chinese interest, part cattle, and part this, part that. I really don't know. Farmers, you know, want to grow cotton there and uh, so on. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, the, the face of the cattle industry has changed completely. Back in those days, they only carted uh, bull, our bulls or anyone's cattle into the wind and meatworks, which were still going at that stage. That's another thing that's deteriorated, having no meatworks at the area. But um, they, they're only carted on single deck, you know, one one level. Uh, there's none of those triple triple trailers or body and three or anything like that. It was all flat, uh, flat-top um, stock crates and very slow to move. That's gone completely and the, the roads have improved out of sight. And so that was... Before also, so are we talking the late sixties and the seventies when you yes. started bull catching? Yes. So you would have I ran from sixty nine until eighty one. I finally got out of wow. 30, thirteen years, my lucky number. <laughs> and so that was all before live export as well, wasn't it? Oh, well before, yeah, unheard of. Oh no, it wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe just after that period, uh, I was working at a Kildirk, which is a great station that was owned by Andy's uncle, uh, one of the Duracs, one of the original Duracs, Reds Durac, and. Uh, I'm a bit fuzzy on the times that I think, I think uh, the manager of the uh, current manager, one of the many managers of Kildirk at the time. So I'm not sure. It'll be just after that period, uh, did approach me and said, "How about you do?" He didn't have a clue. In other words, he said, "How would you like to deal with this agent who was uh, Pat Shaw, who used to be the uh, general manager or the PI past inspector for the Hooker Group of stations here? It's quite a big responsibility, I think, given that that included BRD in it." And uh, he uh, and and he sort of the manager person wanted me to deal with something. I dealt with Pat, and Pat was the uh, go between for the sale of about two hundred head or something like that. So I did that once. I don't think I made a brilliant success of that either. So that was that. But that was just after that period, and I think that was just the beginning. Whenever that was, was just the beginning, more or less, of around that short era of uh, of live cattle export, which has certainly boomed since. So tell me about the first bull that you ever caught and what it was like. How did you prepare to go bull catching if it hadn't really been done? It hadn't by been men- done at all by me. In yeah. Particular. Well, I'll give you an individual perspective. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, all right. We we went up to Darwin and uh, bought a uh, short wheelbase trader. They're only twin- – how much were they? Well, some ridiculously cheap price, 12000 or 18000 or something like that. Oh, wouldn't and that bought, be nice today? It would indeed. Be, <laughs> put one in a stock crate or put one away in a vault somewhere, it would be worth anything. But uh, brought one of those back to Wyndham and uh, I hired a – I hired a, I bought one of those back to Wyndham and a, and a half a stock crate that had been damaged when a Bundine's in a rollover. So we, we sort of, we cut it in half and saved, made one good body truck and put it on the old Leyland, funny enough, one I mentioned earlier, and um, – Put a few bits and pieces on the, uh, not much, but stripped it down. The short wheelbase. I've still got its descendant over there in the shed now, actually. I've heard about I, this. I we'll kept, have to go I look kept, after. I kept one, yeah. And, 
and away I went and I hired a ringer. What had happened is Dunham River Station had been bought by American interests and they were going to do great things as feedlots and everything. None of it eventuated. Uh, some few stories associated with that but uh, for another time perhaps. But um, there were ringers that were getting paid $100 a week. Shock, horror. Back then that was unbelievable. But Chuck uh, Denny was the man who was managing Chuck for Charles and smoked a cigar on the white hat and all the business. He, he went over to Brisbane as it was the capital centre. The, the the capital city centre of the cattle industry and, and, and advertised for a top class ringer. I sat back and interviewed them and he got quite a, he got some good men too. I'll give him that. You know. A couple of them going, some not so good too. I'll give him that too. But anyway, I got one of those to do this for me because I'd never done, as I said, I still can't ride horses and couldn't care less. So these guys are all good, all good pull throwers or whatever, you know, can do anything. So he, um, I got a bloke called Johnny James, late Johnny James. He died in a helicopter crash some years ago. But he, uh, he went out and, uh, um, as a per arrangement with, with Les Brown, I five and I, about halfway between here and Wyndham, there's some beautiful big open flats. I said, right, I go out there, we've got permission, see what you can do. So he went out and he caught a few. And, uh, that was that. That was the, that was the start of it. Then, uh, that was right at the end of the year. He went back to Queensland and his last words to me were, right, I curb. He said, we'll, we'll show him what we can do with these bulls. So that was what we can do with these, this bull catching, you know, as I'd call it. And uh, next thing I know, I'm driving out of town at the next year, early next year before the dry season. So here he's coming this way with all his own gear, the full <laughs> catcher, a bloody truck and good stuff. <laughs> oh, how do you do? Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, what we'll do next year, yeah. I'd been banging. So anyway, away he went. He went to another area. He tried mine first, but the stations that will remain loyal to me, which will at, at that stage we'd branched onto Lejeune and uh, – Somewhere oh, else. so you'd you'd hired him to come and work for you and with you, yeah. and he went out on his own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's common. It's right through. Yeah, yeah. Time. Bit cheeky though. That's all right. Oh, so, uh, so the first time that you caught a bull, though, when was that? Well, like you yourself. Sorry, I'm a bit slow building up. Yeah, he, no. So yeah. he buzzed off somewhere, and it's up to me. So I jumped in the tide. I only went out of town two or three k's. There's uh, a bit of an Aboriginal community out there at the moment. Five k's, maybe at the most. And these three bulls, two big ones and a young one, I thought, I'll go for the young one. I'll do it myself, you know. So I had the straps. Are you all by yourself? Oh, by myself, yeah. Yeah, I was too stupid to know any other way of doing it. Well, it wasn't even a recognised business at that stage. So off I go across the flat at Sandy Country, which is pretty negotiable. And what I negotiated later, unbelievable, but uh, <laughs> I'm still still shudder at some of those creeks I dived into. But um, anyway, uh, I picked the youngest one, and that was a mistake because big old bulls are, Relatively, and I stress relatively slow, not so nimble. The young ones, Mickey's about two year old. <gasps> Worst possible thing, you know, that you can, but anyway, I'd have bowled him over to cut a long story short and tied him up. It's quite a moment, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, I just can't believe that you went out there by yourself, like had something gone wrong. You oh, were just... I abraded by myself all my life. I never, never took anyone out in the, That's when I say wild. never, I had a couple of people come out with us. But, uh, yeah, I, it was all, this is one of the reasons why I'd like, if this gets out and gets around a bit, I'd like to tell the story, just, but there was no one there to witness whatever happened to me, you know. And I got gored, for example, only once in my life. I was, you know, you've got to be sensible about these things. Not much fun getting gored by a bull. Yeah, well, no, no one else, no one knows what's happened to you and who's exactly there to help right you. And In fact, I, I did give it a passing thought, and that's all I in my ear and out the other, that there's only two of us there ever at any time, me and the pickup truck drive, just a two-man two operation. That was an economic reason, not to, not for anything else. He was also, whoever got to drive the truck also got to fix the flat tyres, cook the, cook the meals such as they were. I think I've, some cheeky specimen once labelled me with Camp Pie Kirby because we used to have boxes of Camp Pie, 
<laughs> easy to open and eat and eat and go, you know. <laughs> yeah, we put in some long hours in those days. So how did you prepare that? Uh, was it a 40 series land cruiser, that short wheelbase? Is that this what is, this is, is embarrassing. I don't remember what it was. I think there, there might have been an FJ forty five, but they were the short wheelbase rag top uh, convertible. Yeah. So how did how did you prepare that? Because this also would have been well. Well, frankly, the- I didn't. I strapped a couple of tires on the front for for anti bruising, and that's how it stayed for the entire duration of the business. And uh, it works worked then, and it worked now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so where did that? Had somebody else already done that? Like, where did that idea come from? Well, I think there might have been. Well, I have no idea. <laughs> but there was. A, I think it's a matter of parallel development. In the territory, you know, they they tried the bit out of the the Hatari style out of it with the with the pole and the loop and, the, and you know living dangerously. And the, I wouldn't have gotten that box for a million quid. <laughs> I don't know how they did it. There were another parallel development was down parallel development was down in Derby. Uh, Hank, someone, an American gentleman, tried it out of a saddle. He had a saddle wrapped on it, a throwing rope. That's another way of doing it, I suppose. But uh, at any rate, after a few years, I'd I'd gone broke at that and. Uh, uh, just about gone broke, only due to the uh, the uh, good heartedness of people like John and Sylvia Woodhead, who were the local Toyota agency at the time. They carried me for credit when they didn't have to, and they were very good. I'd like to pay tribute to them, and uh, but I didn't do much in the way of modifications at all. I bought a lot of spare parts. We had a pallet full of springs, for example, like that. But uh, another bloke that had a go at the game later on was Ralph Searle, and Ralph came up with a brilliant idea of building a radius rod out of just, which is just a, you know, a steel tube about so long, rubber bush both ends, and bolted from the chassis to the spring, so, so the chassis to the axle, sorry, so the axle could move up and down, and not, and that relieved the poor old spring of taking the backward shock, which, which when you hit a rock or a stump or a gully, which happened usually about every five minutes, completely wrecked the spring. So that was a, a, a innovation by Ralph. And so this Hatari method that you were describing, so is that, sorry, they were in a in a vehicle as well and had like a piece of rope on a pole that, so they'd kind of just like lean, kind of, kind of like a fishing, oh, like when you catch butterflies almost, like one of those you just hold out a piece of pole with a rope on it and just try and loop it over their head? Is that, uh, yeah, is that what it was? Yeah, they're just, uh, the, the difference between cat, red cattle and buffaloes is the poor old buffalo is a domestic uh, animal. And he's gone feral up there in big numbers. There was a huge industry in, uh, not in meat, but in, in hides. And they were being slaughtered by the untold thousands for just the hides. Some interesting photographs. And there's a book here you should read if you haven't called Wild Men, Wild Times or something like that. I've got it inside. I can show you. Yeah. But, um, the Aboriginals, not even a loin, loin cloth on, you know, and that helping them skin and uh, pack these, uh, things up in the territory, pack these uh, big hides on. But, uh, yeah, they, uh, the, the technique was to just have one man driving, one man with the uh, up in the front on the cage bolted on the front of the front oh, of the bull bar. Oh, okay. And he's got a stick, and it's got a loop dangling off it. You know, this is a, this I believe was one of the, I never even saw it actually happening. You know, but I've had a lot of descriptions. And, and he, the, the guy, would drive up alongside, and whereas the old buffer just run along in a straight line, he was pretty easy to run up alongside and just drop a loop over his head. That would be utterly impossible with a, with, a, with a mature red bull, red cattle boy. He couldn't do it. He's, he's up and down and mad, you know, and he doesn't want to get it. He wants to get away. That's his prime, uh, prime response, flee. <laughs> yeah. I wonder when they did catch the buffalo, though, if they're just holding the pole, do they have it attached to something Oh, the, well? the pole got dropped out of it somehow. I don't know. As I say, I've never seen it. Yeah. But the rope was attached to the car and they oh, just back, okay. up, back up to a tree. Or yeah, whatever. okay, cool. But later on that was replaced by the arm and that became the dominant thing. 
Yeah. That was an innovation where it, and it removed the need for some lunatic up, up front in the, in the cage. In fact, that might have taken over fairly quickly because it might have lost a few blocks. I don't know. <laughs> but this, this other one was a, they adapted a, a there's a, there's a, uh, I've got an article somewhere. Some bloke adapted winch controls to a mechanical arm and the arm is famous right through for catching, uh, buffalo. They go up alongside and you, you pull a lever and this mechanical arm on the right front corner would go bring and it'd hold it, grab it behind the, round the neck. And then you could just stand there while you could do anything with the tip its horns, branded, tie its legs together or trotted along, you know, and it was completely captive that way. But he's big and strong, bigger than a red cattle, but relatively docile. And so when you were catching bulls, so you said you had the tyres on the front, so you would just bump them and knock them over uh, and then... Yeah, yeah, a bit more to it than that. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, yeah. Very, so- <laughs> very carefully, yeah. I, I broke a lot of legs, in, I'll, I'll admit it, I broke a few legs, not a lot, but in the, which was a complete waste to everybody, including the bull who had to be shot as a consequence. But, uh, yeah, you had to get them exactly, fetch a bull there with a head and neck and they're the legs. If you hit it, there's the short ribs. This is the tire. You'd have to hit them exactly there and break instantly, which is where your brakes had to be, had to be, um, spot on. You'd bump him down. Not, not, if you didn't hit him hard enough, he'd skitter sideways. This is 30 miles an hour. He could do that. They're very good on their feet. Or if he went too far, he went over the top and injured his legs getting caught in the, uh, underneath or whatever, you know. So you had to bump him off his feet, but at the same time accelerate, then instantly break so that he's half pinned. Now comes the interesting part. You grab a strap out of the back, leap out, and grab hold of whichever pair of legs are, are sort of free, hold his head down and tie the legs together. This is very, uh, this is the moment of truth if you want to, if you wanted to compare it to uh, bullfighting. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I've never actually done that myself and I've, I've always thought, oh, it'd be fun to give it a go, but. Fun. <laughs> Yeah, I think I just like hearing you talk about it and I'll, I'll just live through your memories, uh, perhaps. But I, I want to go back to this bit about the, sure. the art of, of tapping them in the right place and the amount of pressure. Cause I think that's something yes. that gets lost in translation a lot. There are a lot of videos, some of them not great out on the internet of people bull catching or, you know, on TV and whatnot. And it kind of just, I think that the art behind it gets lost in translation of the actual Making contact with the animal, like yeah. people think you just got to knock well, them over and then tie them up. The, the ABC came up and made a came up and made a film at once, and uh, even then, that was in the days before they had mini cameras that they could put underneath and uh, take it from any angle. We had a, a live photographer, you know, and at one stage he uh, he wanted to get out in the bull bar. I said, "No way, you, you <laughs> have to experience what what I'm talking about." I think is you can't describe it. There's no one there to film it, you know. It's always yeah. just me by myself, which I've always been sour on. You know? <laughs> like a little bit of. No, not notoriety at all, but a little bit of knowledge of this to, to be put out, how it really was, you know. Yes. It did, I will say this without a, without a blush. It did require some skilled driving to catch those damn things and then hold them down. Yeah. So, so you see the ball and they're running. Are you sort of driving alongside it or do you try and get right behind it, behind its? Right alongside of it. Well, when you first see the animal, uh, the first thing you've got to do, and this only comes with years and years and years of, uh, of experience and, and occurrences, um, you've got to assess the country around you in a, in a nanosecond, you know. Uh, you know what – you get to know when you're with – all cattlemen have know this. They know the cattle will run to cattle. If you had one bull grazing out here by himself, as they want to do, uh, and there's a mob over there, you know he'll run – generally he'll run to the cattle or vice versa. You know, cattle will run to cattle. But the instant you see it, right, there's a mob, boop, there's two young bulls there and a big old bull out there or the other way around, whatever. You have to assess which one you want to get first and then work out how you're going to draft him out at speed 
uh, within what and how hard you have to go because there's a creek over there, there's a gully there, and the river's down there, and they'll probably go for the river most likely or the ranges or whatever. But you have to assess that in in fractions of a second because as you're driving, broom, oh, there they are, and, and I could do this, and, I, and I'd immediately cut out the beast. I'd either cut out one of the young ones from the mob or if it was the old bloke over there, I'd go for him, but I would then perhaps uh, see where the best country was to drop him. This is all happening in, in a blink, and then I might choose to run the small mob back to the old black, or if it's one bull by the riverbank, the first thing he's going to do is duck into there for cover. So if I come up, uh, first thing I'll just go right around it to edge him away from the river. So assess the country for the best catching, the best running and knocking down ground. And that that's the art of it, really, more so than the uh, dodging ant beds and rocks and gullies and all the other stuff that used to come up. And so when you spot the beast and you start your approach and the chase is on, are you sort of, if you're in the driver's seat here, are they kind of up in front and a little bit off to the side of you or do you, are you? Well, when you catch up with him, yeah. uh, there's one technique is they've got a great big swollen belly full of water. You, you run them as hard as you can, bearing in mind the constraints of keeping him within knocking down ground. You run him as hard as you can and he'll puff up with you. But if he's a long-winded thing and lean and ready to go, the same thing, you've got to pick the best one. But what you do is you've got to run him to an area where you're behind him, constantly pushing him to run flat out or to just run, and then you rush up alongside again, neck of beast, leg of beast, Toyota, you've got to, from behind, you're getting on different sides and to guide him to where you want him to knock him down. I got that stage where I reckon I could knock him, you could put a paper bag on the ground, I could bring him around and knock him down on that. Anyway, uh, in fact, I did it a couple of times, tell the truck driver to put the gate down on the truck then I'd run the beast around and try and get it in just for a joke to try and get his head at the bottom of the ramp where we pull him up later. <laughs> I succeeded a couple of times. <laughs> not exactly, but close enough. Yeah, but, but what you do is you, you rush it and you bowl him over, but not so hard as you're going to break bone or ribs or hurt him because they've got to hide that thick three quarters of an inch. And, uh, and you've got to be careful of, uh, that sort of thing because you don't want ruined goods on your hands. And, uh, I've, i ruined very, oh, I've had to kill very few beasts after the first three or four or five years and you get the hang of it. And he gets down, and then you, as I say, you, you hold him down. He's not, he's only half pinned. And as I say, that's the moment of truth when you've got to get in and tie either his front legs or his back legs together. Yeah, I'm and, glad that was you and not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was all right. You get used to it. And so back in those days when you would catch them, so you said you'd jump out and you'd put a strap around them. So was it just a strap around legs or did you put, uh, like, was it? Well, back the one legs pair of and- legs that was sticking out, you strap them first. Yeah. And then you drive away and leave him. It's a curious thing. But once they get up and stand there, my thinking is that is they probably think they're injured and, and want to recover or something like that. That's where they stay. And they stay there for a very long time. So, you, so you're effectively just hobbling them. Hobbling them. Yeah. yeah effectively, you are hobbling it. Okay. One pair of legs only, front or rear, whatever. Yeah. And so when you came back with the truck, yep. how do you get them? They're just standing there hobbled. How do you get them from that position onto the truck? Well, you, you bowl them over again or push them down. They, they're not as mobile. They're not bad. I wouldn't like to try and outrun one on foot, I could tell you. One of the ABC uh, j- film crew that came up found that out for himself. He was ex-army just along for the fun of it, you know. <laughs> he nearly got caught. I said, don't go. I said, they can get up and they can run in a straight line. They can run as fast, faster than you can. And he did duck and dodge. He, he might have remembered my advice. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, we come back. We bowl them over again, put another pair of legs on, a pair of, another strap on them, so there's a pair of straps on them. Both, both legs strapped. And then um, while he's down, we'd uh, two of us would get out, one to hold the head down because uh, if he can't get his head up, he can't get his underside leg up, you know. 
if, if I, you hold him down certain ways, you know, the, there are plenty of good stockmen around to show us these techniques, you know, how to throw them and hold them and all those, that sort of stuff. But um, you'd hold him down and then you bring the bring the truck up, lower the gate down, a slide gate made out of heavy steel plate, reasonably heavy, and then uh, there was a pulley up the top and this wire cable wrapped around the back of the truck, which you'd un- undo, run it, and it was permanently run through this wheel and then down onto the, put the bull around the bull's horns and while he's on his side, uh, you just back off the Toyota and then just pull him up the slide until he's hard up against the snatch block up top. And then that's, and then you tie the head rope up. Oh, you put a head rope around while he's on the ground too, a big heavy nylon rope with a loop in the end and about eight foot long. You'd pull him up to the snatch block and then you'd hold him there and you wouldn't tie a knot in it. There's no need to take three or four turns around the two inch pipe that's specially there for that purpose. And then back off with the Toyota. The, the guy up on top of the, uh, Climbed up the truck. The truck driver climbed up on top of the truck. Uh, undid the um, undid the uh, the chain off the uh, thing. That's why you always had to put the uh, the rope on first and the chain on top because the chain had to come off first. Yeah, and then he throw it back down at the gate. I'd back off and uh, pull the gate up and then lock the lock the gate down. So there we have the truck driver up top, the bull roped to the side of the truck, and the gates up raised and locked. So and I'd do the wire up while he was doing other business, which was to slowly let the uh, the rope off, you know, with three or four turns around the pipe, because uh, he, uh, his first instinct is to ram the other balls in the thing, and if he hadn't been tipped, he could do quite a lot of damage. They'd usually sink the bluntened hook into the uh, ribs, you know, under the under the short ribs. So sometimes when you were putting a bull onto the truck, there were already other bulls on the truck. Oh, always. Well, when you opened the door, they could just run out if they weren't tied Yeah. So, oh, okay. We so they stayed tied well, they up. They staggered on them the- head to tail. You know? Oh, okay. And they stayed tied up on the truck. Oh, yeah. Well, so they were- Remember that rope I mentioned, the long rope? That's yeah. a head rope. Once once the chain comes off, he's still tied to the thing. The, the truck oh. driver has to then walk along the side of the truck. Yeah. And, uh, and try and pull him. Well, not pull him. You can't pull something that weighs half a ton raving mad. But just somehow artfully get him – there are ways of doing it. You know, you could take a turn around something else and pull him up short every time he moves. Yeah, so kind of like how you you can tie horses up in a horse truck you time. I presume but, that's how to be the same. Yeah, or like tying them up to fence. So you're tying them head to tail. So yeah, because they're tapered. Look at that from above. They're very broad across the shoulder. Yes, yeah, yeah. so they fit in there. evenly and also there's less chances of them knocking Hooking horns. Hooking and damaging, yeah. You want to keep the product as sound as possible. So if you, you're putting the rope around or the chain around their horns to kind of bring them up onto the truck with that pulley system, did the horns ever break? Like I'm guessing they must be strong if that's the way you did it, but I'm, I'm imagining people. Oh, break off. No, no. Yeah, no, yeah. No, no, never, no. No, it's a bull we're talking about. You know, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just thinking of people that may be listening that have never even seen this done. I can just imagine you think that if you're trying to drag something. Well, it's around the, the, the rope's around the base of both horns, which is part of the skull. Yeah. And I, you'd have to ask those people, not that they would have, but uh, have you ever tried to pick up a bull head? You know, if it's died or been, if you've chopped up one up for feed, a bullock or something, and uh, you got to pick it up, weighs about 150 pounds. It's a big, strong unit is what I'm trying to say. I mean, break off, no chance, no way, Jose. Oh, brilliant. Okay, cool. I never, never saw it. Yeah, I was going to say, well, I didn't, I, I figured if that was an issue, then, then that's not the way you'd be doing it. But I just had to ask because I can just imagine somebody out there listening going, well, I, I know, um, obviously this is quite a different scenario, but many years ago, I'm dragging, you know, like a, a dead body away from a, or dead animal away from a water point. I'm and- glad you clarified that. Yeah, 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 yeah dead body. <laughs> well, that was another time, you know, guys. Uh, but this, uh, this, uh, a cow had been, it was weeks or months, you know, oh, rot, decom- rot and fall apart. Yeah. And so I put the, <laughs> I put the chain around the horns, like, cause it was, it had kind of 
died, I guess, like with its legs underneath it. So I couldn't yep. really get to a leg. And I drive off in the Toyota and I look back and I'm just dragging a skull along and the rest of the body was left back there. Did you put it around both horns? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, I just, I just drove away with a head and just this whole guts and everything. I mean, it was, it was months of decom, probably all weeks of decomposition. Pretty, so yeah. I was just like, I wonder if that happens when they're alive. No, no, no way. <laughs> and, uh, what about the times of year that you could go bull catching? You know, uh, out here there's a lot of black soil country, and as you said, you, you had a lot of ant beds and other things to to dodge. And I know you can be driving somewhere, and then you can have like um, drop offs, and I mean, there's just all sorts of stuff going on out there. So, how did that affect when you could catch bulls, and what kind of country? You In could two access? ways: one, the uh, trucks can't get into on those. Bl- you number one is you avoid black soil like poison. Uh, black soil is broken down basalt, which is 90% of the Earth's surface, and um, the surface layer of rock. And uh, it's uh, it's the old river course you know, of the Ord, where we worked all the way through from uh, as far down south as uh, Mistake Creek, right out to the Northern Territory, uh, Vic River. And that's the meandering course of the Ord. I know this in particular because I have a hobby of studying amateur studying a plant called Typhonium and it it, it, it is only grows on black soil, which is the old old um, um, old old river course, ancient, you know, goes back millions, 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 millions of years. Geology, uh, you know, half a million years is not all that important in some ways. But uh, yeah, so you number one is you avoid black soil. Uh, that's not hard, there's plenty of other flat stuff around the place. If you see them in black soil from a distance, you know and if you know the area you can sometimes deliberately drive wide either way or go away and come back from the other side to drive them back onto what you know is good country. I avoid black soil. Number two. Yeah, well, I suppose that's it, really, avoid black soil. That's about it. <laughs> it's a pretty simple rule. Yeah, because, you know, it can be that rough and it's that pitted that deep. You just cannot simply drive a two-wheel drive vehicle over it or a four-wheel drive. Yeah, that and that would be in the dry season, let alone the wet season. Yeah, You'd just yeah, be it's asking. Yeah, determined when you can operate by the wet season, really, yeah, the, the cattle, yeah. The same restrictions apply to uh, horse mustering or later on helicopter mustering as it came into vogue. So it's not just uh, so it's not just about whether or not the ground's too wet that you're going to get bogged on this black soil or whatnot. But I suppose also in wet season it'd be hot That's and when humid. It's wet. When it's dry, it's 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 you can't go across it. It's yeah. Rough. Yeah, but in the wet season, if in in the non-black soil country in the wet season, were you catching or was it just too hot that it would put too much pressure on the animals and yourself? I guess. Oh no, we uh, in the early days, uh, sixty-seven onwards, uh, not sixty-seven, uh, seventy. When did I say I started? Sixty-nine, I think it was. Yeah, sixty-nine onwards. We used to operate. I've got a faint memory. Used to work up to about the tenth month of the year, or October or something like that. So it wasn't – well, it was tough on yourself, sure it was. We never used to wear roofs. That's why I got skin cancer one into the other, I think. But, uh, yeah, um, they they must have fairly – just about at any time of year, but the, the, it's it's limited by access to getting the cattle out by road. I'd say that would be the answer to that one because uh, with helicopters, you can must, there's no, no problem there with the black sea. You can must them wherever they are. When did when did the change come in from you'd go out there and, and catch oh, – oh, actually, so you were out there for – so if you were working, you know, up to 10 months of the year or into the 10 months. Nah, very 10, rare. 10, yeah, very 10 rare, months, yeah. yeah. But that, that long, how long of a time would you go out for, like, at a time before you'd come back into town or have a day off or, you know, like – Until you something went, was broken down. <laughs> really? No such things on Saturdays or Sundays. You just keep going until you couldn't hang out, you couldn't put up with something that was – just needed replacing, or if it was something major, you know, like a diff gone, which 
only ever happened once and it didn't blow up. It was just a matter of the bolts coming loose, which was a warranty job. It must have been a production yeah. line fault. <clears throat> yeah, just until something was broken or you were right out of food or right out of something, you know. So when you filled up the body truck, though, so you've gone around, you're, you're catching the bulls, then you come back later, pick them up, put them on the body truck. When that body truck gets full, did that have to go into town to drop them off or did you have a set of yards somewhere? Oh, I always you- had yards, portable yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. invention since sliced bread, yeah. Well, I, the calluses on my hands might argue against that. <laughs> I'm not, well, I mean, yeah, portable yard's well, pretty handy. Yard's as, as long convenient. as you, as, yeah, yeah, I was like, you've got the princess here who doesn't like having to cart them around. Uh, but so you would have yards and then, then would you wait until you filled up those yards and would you have to try and get a road train in or something? Try to- and get a road. Well, initially we only ever carted them away 20 at a time. We could, we could fit about eight, eight big bulls or eight and a few small ones or 10 with a few small ones. And, uh, in the earliest, at the very start of it, we, um, we, we could only get a semi, single semi trailer out at a time, which was, well, double that number, you know. Yeah. 18 to 20 at a time. So that's when we get 18 to 20, we'd go into the station, <coughs> get him to radio up the meatworks, there's no phones or anything in those days, and, uh, and, uh, not, not the meatworks, the trucking company, and who would in turn advise the meatworks, and the way they'd go. How long at a time do you think you were out there for like your longest stint? Well, I could be out there for 10 minutes and if I blew a, blew a motor, which I never did, but I mean, if something major mechanical went wrong, uh, we'd be back in town <laughs> straight away. But uh, generally, in, in general terms, I suppose probably about two, two weeks, something like that, three weeks. And so uh, this is know. again. Two weeks would be more like it there. Yeah. yeah. So this is sixties and seventies, early eighties. What, what did you live on out there? Like, where? I oh, would take a heap of groceries. Uh, you know, Did you have anything to keep? Like you would have been on beef, beef mainly. Yeah, I was to say you wouldn't have had any refrigeration though, would you? Uh, not in the early times, no. We were tough, <laughs> <laughs> tougher than some, that's for sure. And so, uh, tell me more about. So you so you weren't. So you we're not entirely sure what vehicle you started off with, but I know you've got a forty series still in the shed here. Oh, it's a twin to that, the one we started with, yeah. Yeah. So what was that the main vehicle you used during your catching career? Or did oh, you, absolutely. Did you have it was the only one I used. The only one. The only one. Yeah. So, the only style of vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. So short for- wheelbase, a long wheelbase. Steve Waddell was a fantastic bloke with an education. I think he would have been the Prime Minister of Australia for sure. Highly innovative, funny character. I could tell you lots about him. And, uh, he's dead now, poor old Coop, but a uh, long time ago. But um, he used to use a long wheelbase. He was, he was the uh, elegant old, you know, <laughs> drive around here. There's a nice spot for dropping there. You know, the, the rate and speed and the style was uh, that I developed uh, was more comprehensive, I suppose. And so how, you know, so when you'd first gone out to catch a bull, you'd never really worked with cattle before, you said. You hadn't... I'd never worked with cattle at all, full yeah, stop. Yeah, so you'd never been in a set of yards, you'd never... I could fairly say to you at that age and stage, I'd never touched a cow in my life. It's just, what makes you want to go out and and especially, you know, it's one thing to... Money. Yeah, <laughs> really? Wow, that must mean... So what, so what was a bullet going for, or a bull, sorry, going for back in those days? Well, uh... The um, back to VRD again, and uh, though there's a bit of a link up there. One certain uh, bull catcher was working out there with out of family favour, I think, or something akin to that. But he was getting five bucks a head, but he was also getting the full support of VRD, which included helicopters, portable yards. At one stage, a flood I heard about one incident, the flood came down and cut the road. They flew in enough panels to hold the cattle, unloaded them off the truck until the road dried out, and you know. Oh, jeez, wouldn't I love support like that? I always get, so I got the same pricing structure, five bucks a head. Initially, it, it, uh, I didn't think it was too bad. It wasn't, it was bad, but, uh, that, that's from, 
Carlton, uh, Carlton and uh, or initially from Ivanhoe was the first station we caught on, or I caught on. And um, it was only, you know, a half hour's drive into the meat works or an hour's drive. So you're out bush by yourself, not hooning, but kind of hooning around in a short cool wheelbase. Hooning. I've got yeah, hooning, take yeah. No offense. Great yeah, yeah. Fun. yeah, yeah, having a wild time out there, risking your life, catching these bulls. And there were, I mean, this is the 60s, 70s, $5 a head. I've yeah. got, I don't know what the equivalent value is today. Well, you I'll could buy to- a large bottle of beer for about a shilling or something. Or it wasn't, actually, that was, we're into decimal currency by then. It's about the equivalent. Put it this way, I'd just come off a truck driving job, which was about, I think about 60, 70 bucks a week, which is quite adequate for a single man to live on. Yeah. I'll have just to- values of the time. Yeah. But it was, it was crummy because, uh, as the business developed, I think it was 19, by 1971, again, courtesy of the, uh, the Woodheads who ran the Toyota dealership mainly, I'd say. Many thanks to them again. Um, I was, I owed about, I think it was about 15 or 16 thousand dollars, which was unthinkable money by then. That would have, that would have been about 72, I think, after I'd been in it for maybe uh, three years, something like that. And I thought, well, I'm going nowhere here. And then one of the most unforgettable <coughs> characters I've ever met, and boy, I've met some out bush, I can tell you. Boy, have I what? I'll, um, Des, he's probably dead now. I haven't been in touch with him for many, many years, and he was an old man back then. So. But uh, Des was managing a government station, which was the old regeneration project of two and a quarter million acres. And um, I'll tell you the story. If we've got time, you can cut it out later or that. But uh, I used to drive the bull catcher around town, you know, the, this bloody scabbard with a the horn saw in it, and young boy would come and say, oh, can I have a look at your gun, mate? <laughs> that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, all hair swept back and bloody beard and, and you, you, you know, you're in a perpetually touchy state because it was a touchy business. I, uh, it used to take me about two days to get back to normal when I'd come back in from our bush because if something moved, you know, well, if you didn't move quick out bush, you could be dead, you know. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it altered your mental state for a few days, you know, when you, you know, you ran, like we were driving along in the town and, uh, Paul and say, turn left. And I'd, oh, no. <laughs> I'd turn left and the street was still about 50 metres off the road. <laughs> But at any rate, yeah, it's uh, quite a, quite an interesting business in, in that aspect. What was I going on about there? I got direct diverted by that memory. That, yeah. That's all right. Uh, I asked you. Um, oh, it was about the $5 a head thing, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, and you well, were $15,000 in debt. Yeah, and I met, we met Des and Des said, young fella, he said, you look like a, are you a bull catcher? And I felt like being a smart ass. I said, no, no, I'm a helicopter pilot or something. Because what it looked like with air everywhere in the <laughs> But, uh, he said, look, he said, would you like to come down and have a look? He said, I've got a helicopter bottle that owes me some time and we'll go for a quick look around the station. So uh, we, so I duly drove down about 200 miles, whatever it was, and uh, put us up in the chopper and we, we drove around for about 10 minutes. I saw enough balls in there to set my finances straight within, within about no more than five k's of the station, pretty flat land. Yeah. So uh, to cut a long story short, I went down there, set up, and we made uh, – the $64,000 gross in that first year on, on Ord River Regeneration Scheme and uh, paid everything off, bought a block of land in, in town where we subsequently lived in a caravan, had a shed on it, and uh, we were pretty right from there for money. Later on, I edged it up to $50 a head, or 50% of the cost of the beast, which called for some minor liaison with the meat works, and 
because the stations loved nothing more than getting their hands on all the money and doling it back out to you and could make it very, very difficult. Oh, okay. So you, when you were saying you were getting $5 a head for a beast. That was trucking, including transport yeah. into the meatworks. But that wasn't, was that what the meatworks were paying for the beast or were they paying more? No, that's more? what the station were paying me. Yes. Okay. I thought you meant that's what the station, I mean, that's what the meatworks paid, like nah, that's the whole nah, value. And nah. I was like, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> but so they were paying more and the stations were only giving you five bucks a head. Yeah, it was wow, pretty poor, that's actually, criminal. Yeah. yeah, no wonder I went broke. Well, virtually broke over three years. Yeah, and so that the debt that you racked up then was that from buying vehicles and supplies? Oh, every, no, and- not vehicles, just just everything, fuel, parts, bloody living, you know, yeah. the, whole, the whole catastrophe. You yeah, know, wages. You know. And so that all kind of turned around when you got to go out catching on that Ord River oh, regeneration yeah, that was a area. Point in our lives, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so and so, yeah, it was a, a, a fair deal there. Yeah, lovely young lady straight from Perth and. Uh, she, uh, not used to camping out, you could say. <laughs> she did a magnificent job and she'd been my mainstay ever since. So, yeah. Know. Well, I can't wait to have her on the podcast and we'll <laughs> get her side of the story. Yeah, yeah. Now, at this time, how many other people were there sort of? So take me back through, take me back through at, at this time, uh, when you first started, there'd been a few people kind of starting catching in the, in the territory with that other, uh, what was the name of that method? The oh, well, I call it the uh, the arm. It was the arm. The, the, yeah, the, uh, and before that when they had the rope. Oh, you're not familiar with that movie that came out? No, no, no. I've never seen it, but I'm going to go oh, look it up now. Really? Yeah. Oh, there's, there was a whole film made on it. You know that tune, Baby Elephant Walk? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the theme song from the movie. Oh, okay. From, uh, so what was the movie called again? I'm just trying to think of it. Uh, Sounded like a Japanese name or something. There's something, something. Hatari. Hatari. H-A-T-A-R-I. Yeah. yeah, okay. Hatari, yeah. So people had kind of started off there, I guess there must, was there, there before you started in the Kimberley, there might have been, was there like a, somebody else was kind of trying I, it? I don't have a lot of knowledge. I've been confined to the East Kimberleys and, and just the territory right up and down the border stations, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I have no direct knowledge of how it, uh, how it uh, developed. Well, here's a good, uh, Authentic background noise for the podcast. So we'll just let yeah, this I helicopter guess. pass if that's all right. Yeah, we got to think of them as the enemy because they were, I believe myself, probably the demise of uh, catching bulls, uh, you know, that and barbed wire. Yeah. <laughs> Plenty of it. <laughs> How many other people, when you were doing it in the, I say, so, the, so you did it 69 to, to 81. How so, many other? Oh, a handful yeah. maybe scattered around the place, around the Kimberley. Yeah, yeah okay. And so plenty, plenty had to go because they could see, like me, you know, dollar signs in the eyes. Of gross failures, most of them. Yeah. What, so, and it was the introduction or the availability of helicopters when they started being used for mustering and people started to develop their properties more and put up fences yep. that – I guess just better management in a way. There were less bulls out there to breed and continue this population yeah, going. Better, 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 better land management. You know, better, which is the thing to do, of course. Yeah. yeah. What um do you have any memories of like your close calls? You said you got uh, horned once, or yeah, only once. Yeah. Do you want to tell me about that? Oh yeah, I'd uh, it was on Kildirk and I'd. Uh, I'd uh, tied a bull up. I forget whether his front or his back legs, whatever. I think it was the front legs. And uh, he got up on me because it was right towards the end of the season. You've got to maintain this 
<coughs> incredibly high pitch of alertness or you're, you're in real trouble. And it was late in the year and I'd start to sag a bit and, and all the thing was broken down. And uh, I was in a low state of awareness perhaps. This bull got up and he and um, he came came for me. You know, so he was that was at the front of the trailer where he'd been trapped as I tied him. So I turned around and and, and spun to my normal norm. There would be to, to take two or three quick steps, then jump in the tighter, and um, then just pursue him and knock him down again once he whatever he decided to do. But what happened was there was a, a clump of yellow shiny grass, and I slipped with my right foot on that, and I went down. And uh, as I said, you know, older and slower at the uh, late in the year, <clears throat> and of course he was right behind me. So I immediately got up, bounded up, and went for the back of the vehicle, went to run around the back of the vehicle and swing off the corner before I could get my hand on the back corner and get out of his line of charge, if you like to put it that way. Um, he hooked me in the back, and uh, I could just got a sensation go whop in the back. And it, fortunately for me, he was a straight horn out the side, not a – and equally fortunately, it was one of those um, horns that had been a bit messed. It didn't have a bright point on it. It just had a messed up sort of, you know – End on, I don't know how to describe it, so it didn't do penetrate a lot. Where it did penetrate, it hit my bone, my pelvis or something like that. I don't know what it was. No, it's no big deal. Yeah. It wasn't. No. no, it sounds painful. Yeah, it hit a bone of some sort in the back. I still got the scar there. Ooh. But anyway, and then um, as I then I got up and as he hit me forward, I, I, I went down, I got up and got around the back and he elected to run straight on. I'm glad he didn't come around to finish the job because I would definitely have been in all sorts of strife there. I went up to the uh, – Noel Rickley was the name of the manager of the, the time and his wife, Kate, was a ex- very experienced and uh, – what do they used to call them? A, a senior nurse, a um, – whatever. Uh, matron, matron, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went up there and I didn't tell him at first. He said, come in and uh, you and the doctor come in and sit here, boys. How are you going? And I said, look, Noel, I said, by the way, could I ask, could I ask uh, your wife to have a look at my back there? I can't see it. I can feel it. It's wet and it's bleeding, but it's, uh, I can feel there's something there. Uh, he said, what? He said, yeah. And, you know, so I left him and showed up when she came in and um, she said, oh, yeah. So that's pretty right. She said, uh, ultra, what is it? Sunlight kills all the ultraviolet and it doesn't look too bad. So that was that. <laughs> so she so, did just- thanks, thanks for looking at any right, Kate, if ever you happen to hear this. <laughs> so she just looked when she didn't train her. She was like, oh, oh well, yeah. it was obviously it wasn't too bad. Yeah, that that yeah, was yeah. the only time I've been hooked. I've been horned plenty of times on the hands. And, you know, as you can see, there isn't a straight finger. Left. Yeah, so what other kind of injuries did you pick up along the way? Sorry? What other kind of injuries did you pick up along the way, like in your time? Oh, injuries, oh, just the usual run of stuff, you know, mangled finger. Oh, I, I, I remember on Mistake Creek I once uh, got up on the back of the trailer at night in the dark to gather some dead wood off a tree and I overbalanced in the dark, no sight reference I suppose, and I jumped to lean upright and I landed off my right foot and badly twisted an ankle. That put me out of business for months. So I land on a piece of wood. I've got the wood all right. The but, one thing that puts you out of business for months and people go, oh, oh no, what's wrong with you? What happened? You twisted my ankle. There were no balls involved. None at all. That <laughs> mm. sums it up. But, uh, yeah, I, I had a, I had a bad back injury, amateur bodybuilding in Melbourne when I was only 18, and that's, that's plagued me all my life. It was that bad. In 72, I had to have a, an operation called a laminectomy. I, I assume it takes a layer off something, but. That stood me in pretty good stead, and uh, it, it came back to plague me. Still does, in fact, still does wow. today. But, uh, but uh, you know, I did a whole lifetime of bull catching after that forty, fifty years or something. You know, no problems. 
for something that's such a serious and high risk occupation that would require a lot of concentration and, and professionalism, were there any particularly funny moments in your time out, out bush? Nah, there wasn't a lot of levity in it. <laughs> it was all pretty, all pretty serious all the time. Oh, it was interesting, you know. So. Yeah. How do it was you, challenging, you, constantly challenging. And you had so much time on your own. How did you go, I guess, not coming back a little bit weird, a little bit crazy, like spending so much time on your own? Uh, hyped, hyped up, you know. Uh, you, you, I don't think anything else showed in it, but I could see myself that I would jump at it, you know, or, you know, any sudden movement to close to you. Yeah. Make you very, very nervous. How did you decide when it was time to call it a day and and step away from bull catching? Oh, the kids were growing up, you know. I remember taking our oldest boy out, Johnson, and he's only a nipper, and set him on the front seat and caught the – I think he caught the last bull with me. Uh, caught, you know, it was a bit of a staged operation. But, uh, yeah, kids growing up and being away from home, you know. How, how old were they? We were developing been? the trucking business. What happened was – I'll give you a quicker slide, if that's possible, make it quick. While we were sending it, we bought our <coughs> own single deck truck after a while to make it quicker. It didn't hold them in the yards too long because they lose condition too easy. And of course, uh, the, when you'd cart balls in, station manager would say this, well, you mind bringing back a couple of drums of chopper fuel or something? You know, oh, yeah, all right. Yeah. Or a couple of bales. And it was getting to be bale, loads of hay, the whole truck. And this got a bit much. So we sort of got into the trucking business that way. You know, we'll have to charge or something for this on the, you know, we can't do it for love all the time. So uh, that's how, we, and we were getting into trucking, and that was away from home a bit, and continued to be for a while. But that was the main reason I think for the release of ball catching, and also um, the helicopters had made quite a uh, hole in the numbers. So you know, one, two factors, and you know, that was it. What do you think about bull catching today? Like, when was the last time you got to go out, or, or you've seen it done, or if you've seen anything well, on the TV? Last time I saw it done was thirty or forty years, years ago. ago yeah, I've got no idea what they do. Mainly you. you I have a bit of a chuckle at himself. You say, here's the bull catchers going out and they'll have an aerial shot of four Toyotas driving towards you with two people in each one and not a roll bar between them. Yeah. <laughs> I think, what, what I think, I don't know. Uh, I think most of the, they're just used as a support concept, you know. They'll have a bull, a bull catcher, meaning a Toyota stripped down a bit with tyres on the front, if needed, uh, to catch a bull that might break away or something like that. Uh, I think they're only an adjunct to cattle mustering. Yeah. Some some people did very, very well. Uh, uh, I was too narrow. I was hopeless. I was narrow, fixed, could only see uh, one one way of doing it, and that's that. I was proud of that in a way. Uh, but the others were more practical and made a lot more money than I ever did out of it, I can tell you. Yeah, and there's some good men too. Yeah. Some very good men. I'd like to mention uh, Graham Wicks. He used to manage um, a Vestie station. But he was a top man in every aspect, him and his wife, Val. And um, he, he went out uh, ball catching out. I had to laugh. I, I won't mention any names. There are a couple of managers that said, oh, what a terrible idea, this is your stupid. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> most of them ended up, not most, but a few of them ended up going ball catching themselves when they finished on the station. So, you know, obviously they were making a quid out of it. Yeah. Did your time ball catching ever make you want to get into cattle station life and and, I mean, you didn't exactly have the most warm and fuzzy relationship with cattle <laughs> in your time bull catching, but did it ever make you want to become a cattleman and and run cattle after that? At the risk of sounding ungracious, I was a cattleman, but just of a different person. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry, no. I can wear the hat all right. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, sorry, I didn't mean it like that. I mean, um, you know, like to go on and run a cattle station afterwards because I understand you went into the, the horticulture and other ventures. Yeah, I did. We, we, we ran a, 
banana plantation for yeah. 17 years, made it out of virgin bush here. Yeah. yeah, but did you ever think like, oh, I want to buy a cattle station and do this? Oh, yeah, I've always wanted to own Carlton because I'm a, I'm a, my, my, my recently deceased young grandson was a fifth generation. Uh, Carlton supporters, <laughs> and it was it was owned by hookers where I, th- I first started on I don't know which is just over there and Carlton's up there and out to the border. Yeah, I'd like to have owned a station, but I've never had any aspirations to, to actually run a station. I got invited by the Aboriginals that now own Kilderk. It's called um, Hammond Bidgee now, and uh, I've had other opportunities and offers to look after a place. We did go out to Kildur- uh, out to uh, Bullo River once and looked after it for a week or two for some friends that owned the place, the Andersons. I've never, you know, the, the, the day-to-day life of managing a station is not for me. You know. So as my final question, I'd like to know if you could go back and do this all over again, would you? I would, but I'd do it differently. Yeah, very, very differently. Of course, you know, it's the wisdom of hindsight. You've heard the saying. Uh, yeah, yeah. What would you do differently? I would have a go at, uh, may, comical though it may sound to many today, I would have a go at buying Carlton Station uh, because it's a beautifully situated, you know, it's, so it's on the coast up there, it's got the river there and it's got the Northern Territory border there. It's a mixture of country. Um, I knew the country pretty well back then. I don't know it now. I'd be half lost half the time. Uh, and I think via... What I know about business now, we, we, we did a mile, a square mile of uh, subdivision out here and that took six years. Quite a lot of negotiating, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and between Pauline and myself, I think we could have managed, uh, some loan or some, some, um, hookers wanted to get out of stations with the labour situation with the Aboriginals, the cheap labour drying up and other, and other factors. We might have been able to approach them for a joint ownership pending something, you know. There's always room for a deal, I think. Yeah, that, that's about the only thing I'd do differently. It actually, uh, actually probably yeah, try and own that particular property. I wouldn't be interested in any others that I've seen. Yeah, that's about the only, only thing I'd do differently, I think. Yeah. Okay, and I lied. I thought of one more question. So to finish up, uh, we did touch on this briefly before that you coined the term bull catching. So can you finish us off or finish off this yeah, episode sure. by there was, there telling was a board, us that There story. was a board meeting in the Kununurra Hotel consisting of the directors of bull catching at the time, which was Graham Rogers, who... Gave it away uh, and went into uh, did did a successful trucking thing after that, and um, and and one other like, old, old Steve Waddell since moved on passed on, and we were sitting and having a rum or three, and for some or another casual men's gossip I suppose it, it, what what do we call this budding business this developing business, and uh, and someone said bull running and someone said something else and. Uh, and I suggest, well, bull running is only running them, which is a part of it, but it's not the complete capture picture. And <clears throat> whatever other idea came up, and I said, why don't we call it bull catching, which which is awkward. It's a bit cack-handed as a word, but it's now a word in the Australian language. It's in our dictionary and everything. <laughs> I said, and uh, I talked them out, and so we all agreed to call it bull catching, so they were talking about the same thing. And uh, that went that went on for a while, but eventually it caught on. I called it bull catching. Everyone else did because it was new. It needed a name, and no one knew how to refer this. Catching a bull single-handedly out push, you know. So and every time I hear it, I think, well, that's wacko, you know. <laughs> that's good. Quite pleased about that. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property 
or in the top-end agricultural industry, while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.